Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And he said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We're glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, here are your hungry sheep, and here is the rich pasture of your word. Would you lead us into this richness and fill our bellies with the gospel of our Savior? Protect us from the dangers of the accuser and our own fearful, doubting hearts. Write these words on our hearts and write your new life in the world through your people, alive in the Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I have a recurring dream that manifests itself a couple times a year. I'm gonna share it with you. And I wanna give you license on the front end to make fun of me after the service. Not during the service, that would be a distraction and we're doing everything decently and in order this morning. But after the service, you have free reign to mock me because it's, it's mock-worthy. In my house in this dream, it's not my regular house, but it's a house in my dream. I notice, we've lived in this house in my dream for years, and I notice a heretofore unseen door in my own house. And I open the door, and there's stairs going down. And I have no fear in my dream. There's no fear. There's no trepidation. There's a sense of excitement. There's a sense of adventure. And I go down the steps. And we live, this house is just a normal house. It's on a normal foundation. But in the dream, it's a daylight basement. So we're not on a hill, but all of a sudden, I go down, and there's light coming in from the windows, but it's walled in and safe. And there's room after room after room. It's a really long hallway, and there's all these rooms and sitting areas in my little underground palace. Do you know what the rooms are filled with, floor to ceiling? You don't know because you've never been in my dream, any of you. You've never been in my fabricated home. Each room is lined with shelves, floor to ceiling. And each shelf is overloaded with cowboy boots. Apparently, in the dark, twisted recesses of my psyche, I long to be the Imelda Marcos of Western foot attire. I have no categories for this in my home. I own three pairs of boots, and that's probably about two too many. I don't know where it comes from, as an aside, completely unhelpful and in, unrelated in every way to the sermon, I waited tables in seminary and I got to meet this couple that were dating. 
Um, he ended up, uh, through various conversations, it came out that he is, uh, was a Mossad agent for Israel and had a thing for wild cowboy boots like Jason Kreider's with flames and different colors and suede and they were bedazzled. And I complimented him regularly on his boots and one day he came up to the office with two huge, huge trash cans filled with boots and I was given 30 pair of designer cowboy boots that were a size and a half too big and since I was in seminary, I sold them on eBay to pay for a formula. It's a weird story. It has nothing to do with this. But I can't make any sense of my own secret, meaningless dream. Um, and I'm sure if we each had the chance to share odd, random, weird desires that have manifested in dreams, I'm sure you have stories of your own. The field of dream studies is as old, in many respects, as man himself. But one of the most recent findings is that dreams are beneficial for memory retention. I did not know this until preparation for this sermon, that when you dream and you're in that state of REM sleep, and you're, you're having these episodes of uh, either trying to get away or rescue the princess or ride a flying unicorn, whatever's going on, what's happening is the conversations you had that day and the experiences that you shared are being migrated from short-term memory into long-term memory. And so it's very healthy for us to have good rest, times of healthy sleep, so that we have a memory that processes and hangs on to the most important things for us. And our psalm this morning begins with this dream sequence of sorts. And you may not know the history of Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms of the, the time, but in 722, the, the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. And in 586, this is BC, by the way, in 586, the southern kingdom of Judah fell to the Babylonians. So it was sort of the Babylonians came and took over what the Assyrians had, and then the Persians, just a few years later, came and took over what both of them had taken. So the Persians now ruled the largest empire that the world had ever known at that point in time. And King Cyrus is the king of Persia. And ultimately, he releases his Hebrew captives, and he sets them free to return to their homeland and rebuild their ruins. You may not know this as well, that the Hebrew Bible ends at a different place than our English Bible. Our English Bible ends with the Italian prophet Malachi. Malachi. Malachi is where our English Bibles end. But if you were reading scripture in Hebrew, it goes right to left. That's about all I remember from seminary. It ends up here, and it ends in 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 36.23 reads thusly. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Now, is that, that's fascinating, right? 
The king of Persia is giving praise and honor to Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, and is in fact expending extensive amounts of money and giving slaves back the social security of his own kingdom he puts at stake to serve the God, Yahweh, of the Hebrew people. And here's where it ends. This is the last sentence, second to last, the penultimate and the ultimate sentence in the Hebrew Bible. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Here's the last sentence in the Hebrew Bible. Let him go up. It's beautiful. It doesn't happen, right? When the Hebrew people were enslaved in Egypt and God said to set his people free, you know what happens. It doesn't go as smoothly as this. There are frogs and darkness and blood and canes that turn into snakes and all sorts of miraculous things. This one, God just captures Cyrus's heart and says, let my people go back. And Cyrus says, yeah, I think I will. I'll do that. So these people had been in harsh exile. They had been persecuted as foreign slaves. They had been eking out a meager existence as a scattered nation with no place to call home. And out of that hopelessness, God acted through this Gentile king to set them free, to send them home again. And when they marched back, they were so overjoyed to be free. It felt like a dream world where everything good came true. Their joy in God's mercy was so palpable, so personally real, so raucous and noisy that the watching world, all the nations that they marched through to get back to Judea, to get back to Jerusalem, saw thousands, hundreds of thousands of formerly Hebrew slaves going home skipping like free people and they said, the Lord, the the nations now, the nations said, Yahweh has done great things for his people. Again, it's fascinating when the Lord acts in this way and the nations long to run to the mountain of the Lord. So their hearts are filled with joy. This thing is so frustrating, and with my tiny ears. Earlier this summer, my family and I drove from here in Tulsa to Pensacola, Florida. We stayed on the beach. It was my mom's family reunion. And we drove from there back to Houston with my mom and dad for my 20th high school reunion, which was a big thing. I went to a huge high school in Houston. We had 93 countries represented in my graduating class. And I was the friendliest boy. A lot of people don't go to their reunions because they're afraid. A lot of people go, I just wanted to go lay down and boogie and play that funky music till I die. I was so excited to go. And I was retelling my wife all of the awesome ways that I ruled the school in high school. She didn't know me until I was already a dork, but there was a time when I was pretty awesome and I was making sure she understood I used to be pretty great. And while we were driving, we left our kids with my folks, we were driving down to the party, ready to have a good time. We got a surprise phone call from the president of our homeowners association here in South Tulsa. And we were informed that the house we had just purchased three weeks ago 
while we were on vacation, it looks like it has been broken into. The back doors are wide open and some things are smashed. And I went from telling her all these funny stories and us laughing to wondering about damage, wondering what was taken, how much things would cost to fix. It was this enormous gut punch. In, a, in about 30 seconds, we went from complete and utter joy to complete and utter despair. And that's what the Hebrews experienced in their swing of emotions in Psalm 126. They were conquered and enslaved and now they're set free. But as they exit the freeway and turn down the driveway of Jerusalem, they find that everything they once loved now lies in ruins. They were overjoyed to return, but when they made it back, there was nothing of their home except rubble and ruin. And what they find when they returned is detailed for the church in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, the Old Testament works there, historical books that I encourage you to read. Nehemiah goes, and what does Nehemiah get to work restoring? The wall around Jerusalem. The wall is for protection and security and safety. What does Ezra's tale recount? The reestablishment of the temple and worship. The reason why they had the wall was so they could gather as God's people soundly and securely. I want you to listen to this heartbreaking scene from Ezra 3 that will put some flesh and muscle on the bones of Psalm 126. After the best master craftsmen of the nation had worked tirelessly for two years, they finally completed the foundation of the temple, not the walls, not the walls, the foundation was laid, and they celebrated. And here's what it says, Ezra chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. And all the people shouted with a great shout, and then they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, even though many shouted aloud for joy. Here's, here's a piece of beautiful writing. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. That's kind of where we're at in Psalm 126. The Lord has restored the fortunes of Zion, and the people are glad. And then they go on to say, Oh Lord, restore our fortunes. This is not, this is great to be free. This is not enough yet for us. We need more. The Lord had acted and done amazing things for them. But there was still so very much they lacked. There was no security from enemy forces. Their practice of worship was impeded because there was no temple. There was no sacrifice ongoing. Farms and houses were falling apart and the people who were still around from the good old days knew how far they had fallen and could see just how much overwhelming work still remained. 
And so their praise and their prayer in verses three and four are, Lord, you have done great things for us. We are truly blessed, far beyond what we deserve from your hand, and yet we still dwell in a wasteland. We still need so much more grace, so much more mercy and kind providence from you. And so we ask now that you would act again on our behalf and let your blessings abound to your people. That's what's at play in verses three and four. And that is a prayer that we should still pray regularly, but there's something just as powerful for us to see in the last two verses of Psalm 126. There is both a promise and there's a prescription. The promise is that God will indeed act to pour out blessings. He will cause his people to flourish despite the circumstances that they see around them. Joy will one day eternally eclipse all tears of sorrow, which is the unbelievable message found in Revelation 21, four. That on that day, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's the staggering hope of our future in the gospel. That's the promise that is ours in Christ. That's the hope that these Hebrew singers of Psalm 126 were expressing Restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev, the wasteland, the desert wasteland where nothing can live. Make it a rushing torrent of flooding grace. That's what we long for, and that's what we see in Revelation 21. The prescription, though, is easy to miss. The prescription is this. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Here's the prescription, brothers and sisters. We work while we wait for our full deliverance. These returning Hebrews came back to piles of what once was, with nothing but a dream and a hunger for what might be. They knew they still needed all that God would supply. And they knew that ahead of them lay the path of difficult labor through tears. God would act to bless and they would strive in faithfulness. And despite how much reformed indigestion such a thought of work may cause you, that's Paul's exact teaching in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, when he tells the church in Philippi, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Our theology is not against labor. It's not against hard, back-breaking, tear-jerking work. Reformed theology enlivens work because we're not doing it for our own eternal rescue. We're working to reflect the God who's always at work to will 
and to actively pursue us in his good pleasure to come by his spirit and give strength to our hearts and our legs and our hands. The spirit is at work building us up so that we might work, not that we might sit on our own blessed assurance. And this is where the title of today's sermon comes from, the diagram of suffering well. So here's, here's a, a fruitful exercise that I'm giving you this morning. If you'll put in your little note section, if you have room, um, these three comments that I'm gonna give you in sort of a triangle of sorts. First off, God is at work. Put that one wherever you want in that triangle. Secondly, we're nowhere near completion. And lastly, we labor in hope for God's final act. And here's what you can do as a spiritual exercise or discuss in your family worship or home groups. Circle two of those at a time until you've made three separate groups. So just the God is at work and we're nowhere near completion. The, the God's at work and the current suffering. And then circle the we labor in hope for God's final act and God is at work. So you're always gonna leave the other one cast out on its own, little black sheet. And here's, the, here's what I found fruitful in preparation this week. Go through and describe the person who doesn't operate with all three functioning at the same time. Someone who is certain that God acted in the past and is sad right now, but doesn't know that God, or doesn't trust that God, or doesn't believe right now that God will bring all things to pass for his glory and our gain. What does that person look like who just thinks of the good old days and is miserable about the way things are now? That person is maybe here this morning, many of us, suffer with that, not, not having a hope that we can grasp in the future. And then do that for each of the others and just describe in your own words what that person functions like and how they lean into life and problems in their own existence and in the world. And see that the diagram of suffering must contain all three. There must be a sense of our rootedness, our history, that God has always acted to set his people free in himself. And in God's activity to bring the church, whether the Old Testament church or the New Testament church, to where it is, God never spares us suffering, but he promises it. So he has acted and we are safe and suffering and he will act, there will be a future and if we camp out on any two of those and don't hang on to the three of them together, the diagram falls apart and we become a monstrosity. The diagram of suffering is this. We can no more wallow hopelessly in our sorrow and grief than we could close our eyes and plug our ears and declare that evil no longer exists. The reality of the church's place in the world is to image forth our Savior, our Savior that Isaiah calls a man of sorrows, 
who's acquainted with grief, and yet his life was one of serving through his own tears for the joy set before him. God himself set the lines of this diagram that he would act and we would labor, that he would bless and we would weep. But the final intersection of all those lines when they come together is going to be the overwhelming joy of full and lasting relationship with God, Father, Son, and Spirit, with all the saints scattered across the world through every age. We have no category for how wonderful and mesmerizing that eternity will be for us. These, this psalm is a part of 15 psalms called the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 through 134. And this is the Hebrew road trip playlist on their ancient iPods, just the little ones without the screen that you had to know what was next. This was their playlist when they traveled from their small towns to their big apple three times a year for festivals. They would sing these as they hiked cross country and they would merge in, parties would converge as they got nearer and nearer until the final march up the stairs to the city and toward the temple, you'd have heard thousands of voices singing in unison these songs of return and these songs of hopefulness. And we need, the church needs holy imaginations to hold this in our minds because we still need to worship like this while the world seems to fall apart around us. They sang these hymns while they were working and weeping. And as they did, they were reliving their collective history, recalling all the times that as God's chosen people, he had acted to save them, to bring them back to himself from afar, time and time again. They were singing and becoming a people who knew he was their only strength and salvation. They were singing and becoming those who experientially, personally knew that all was not right in the world. These songs would get stuck in their heads and these songs would haunt their dreams with the cumulative effect that their theology was embodied in their lives, even while so much work remained. So whenever it was that Psalm 126 was written, more than likely it was long after David had shuffled off this mortal coil. It was probably a detailed account of their experience when they returned from exile to Persia. But whenever it was written, the Hebrews sang it again and again, annually, tri-annually. And when their temple was completed and all seemed right in the world, they sang it, they sang it loud. And when the Romans came in and took over and laid their laws and taxes on the backs of the Hebrews, they still sang this song. They sang this song while prisoners in their own homeland. And it was in that context in history that the young child, Jesus of Nazareth, would have learned this tune. Jesus, like every young Jewish boy of his day and most of the girls, knew every psalm off by heart. He knew it like the back of his hand, especially the psalms of ascent. In fact, he 
did more than simply sing a borrowed song. Jesus, even young little toddling Jesus lisping these words out, was singing a worship song in the midst of weeping that he had actually written by the inspiration of his spirit. He knew the words because they were his. He was the restoring Lord who would march up those steps to the songs of his people. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And shortly thereafter, he would march back down those steps with the cry of crucify him, crucify him, still ringing in his ears. Joy and weeping were side by side, not just in the life of Jesus, but also in the death of Jesus. In his tears over Jerusalem, and in his cries from the cross, we see God doing what the promise and prescription is in Psalm 126, Jesus was going out, casting the seeds of the gospel while he was crying. And those of us who have run to him by faith look for the day when Christ comes with shouts and walks home carrying sheaves, us in his arm, the fruit of all his labor. He will walk us to the throne of God on high and set us down as the completed perfect sacrifice of all his work and all will be well. If the first church, the Hebrew church sang this song and the Lord of the church sang this song, then we, the church alive in the spirit here and now should sing it as well. We should sing this song as exiles in a strange land as, uh, as those who have the sure promise of God's everlasting joy already given to us in the spirit, and yet we sing it while we wait for its ultimate fulfillment. And we sing it while we strive to shine the light of Christ in a dark world. We find ourselves in a predicament not that far off from their own. We have been truly and fully set free from not a superpower, something far deadlier than a superpower. We've been set free from the chains of sin that once bound us. And we've been set free into the finished work of Christ that by his spirit we might continue his ministry here. And so, in every way, the Christian life is like living a dream. All of our wildest dreams have already come true for us. We have forgiveness, we have communion, we have family, we have the promise of a resurrection. But we dwell here still. I'm getting an ear enlargement before I come back. We have been really, truly blessed and set free, but we dwell in a world where greed and power and justice, where racism, abuse, and neglect fill every news page and nightly broadcast. We're blessed, but we see stacks of ruin everywhere we look. There's so much yet to do. 
And I don't care if you're a student or a stay-at-home mom, whether you're the toughest lumberjack in Owasso or a tender little snowflake artist. One of the greatest mercies we've been granted from the strong arm of God is the privilege of weeping. It's good, it's so good for us to cry, brothers and sisters, brothers especially. It's so good for you to cry. It's good for you to weep, to give up, to express the brokenness you see in your heart and life and the brokenness you see in the world. It's good for us to cry because our tears give physical proof to our belief in the depravity of man in this fallen world. Even knowing that Jesus was about to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead, he stopped and sat on the roadside with Mary, her brother. Even knowing he was about to speak into a tomb and Lazarus would come walking out. He knew that was about to happen and yet he stopped and cried and wept with Mary. Weeping was good for the savior of the world, the God of the universe. Do you think that you're made of sterner stuff than the Lord? If you think that weeping has no gracious, eroding effect on your steely, flinty heart, look at the Savior crying before he acts in power to raise his friend. You have no business pretending that. Cry once in a while, weep for the wrong in you, in your life and in your city. Only never forget to labor through your pain. We weep but we do it while we're sowing gospel hope everywhere we step. For us as the church in Northeast Oklahoma, I think that means we embrace our calling to be living and breathing images of the Savior. While we raise our children to love and serve the Lord, while we pursue our vocations in business or finance or landscaping, as those who are seeking the welfare of the city that the Lord has led us to, that we give ourselves in our weeping and sowing to education, to healthcare, to ecology, and not because those things are our final hope, but because Christ is coming to restore and establish us in holy fruitfulness. And so here's your charge from the gospel of Psalm 126 as you go out this week sowing and weeping. Go in the fullness of joy for all that is already yours and go in the spirit of broken contrition for all that yet remains out of place and go in the tireless commitment to generously and constantly spread the gospel seed of Christ Psalm 126 is your song too, Trinity. Sing it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, give us all of these by your grace and mercy. Give us long and clear and blessed memories of the million tiny little acts that you've done in your providence to draw us to yourself, of the million ways that you've already saved us and forgiven us and pardoned us. Give us 
steel trap memories that can never let go of your deeds of mercy to us, your children. Give us broken hearts for what remains still out of sorts. Break our hearts for the racism we see continually rearing its ugly head, for the violence we see in the world, for the violence we see in our country and state and city, for the violence we see in our hearts. Break us, give us the grace of tears like our Savior that so secure in you we might feel free to weep and pour out our deep prayers and supplications to the throne. Give us brokenness. And Father, don't stop there. Give us the clarity of a shining hope that comes to us from ages in the future when the sun will rise and set no more, when we'll never know how to pronounce the words tears, death, or sorrow, where the name of Christ is fast on our lips. Give us a hope for that day and strengthen us to suffer well here and to work as your people being redeemed. Do this, our Father, and receive the thanks and praise of your grateful people. Amen.